welcome back to Let's Talk Faith and Justice. My name is Boston, pronouns he, him. I'm one of the co-hosts. And my name's Lyndon, pronouns he, him, the other co-host. Today we wanted to talk to you about white supremacy in churches. And this is not going to be the only episode that we're going to talk about that. But in particular, um, I wanted to talk about the case of the Charleston shooting that happened in June 17th, 2015. I was living in Virginia at the time. Uh, some of you may know I lived in Lexington, Virginia for 10 years, serving as a Lutheran pastor there. And what stood out about um, the Charleston shooting, just as a way of background, uh, one, uh, the shooter, uh, Dylan Roof, was white and publicly identified as a white supremacist through social media. He took photos of himself uh, with various racist flags, including the Confederate flag and an apartheid flag from South Africa. And so it was a real conglomeration of interesting to see a white supremacist who really self-identified as being part of a global white supremacist movement. Um, it led to the Confederate flag being taken down from the state legislature in South Carolina shortly after that. Uh, some really heated tensions around that. But to imagine that for, for black people in America, a white supremacist flag was flying at the state legislature until 2015, so very recent, and is still being flown uh, around the U.S. and parts of Canada, including B.C., I've seen people fly the Confederate flag in BC, Me too. in Victoria. So it's a live thing. It's not just an American thing because it's become an international symbol of white supremacy. Uh, it's not that people in BC identify with fighting on behalf of the Confederacy in the 19th century. Yeah. So, so these symbols take on another meaning. Um, now, sadly, uh, Part of the story, too, involves Dylan Roof walking into uh, the oldest uh, black church in Charleston, South Carolina. It was um, on that day they were having a Bible study. He walked in with his backpack with a loaded gun. Uh, you know, obviously no one checked his backpack. He was welcomed as a visitor, and the pastor was there, who was also a member of the state legislature. And it was like midway, like quite a ways into this Bible study that he then took out a gun and shot people at point blank range and killed nine people, nine, all black people in this Bible study. So just absolutely horrific uh, shooting. Uh, other fact about Dylan Roof, the shooter, is that um, he was Lutheran and grew up in an ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, church, which is our partner church. Um, Boston and I are part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, ELCIC. And so these are our full partners. Um, so the correlate church and which is generally known as the more at least why in broad strokes 
a more progressive Lutheran church than some. But as we know, with any mainline denomination, it's a spectrum. And so he grew up in a Lutheran church in South Carolina where he attended many years and would have heard preaching and would have you know, possibly gone through their confirmation system and Sunday school, things like that. Um, and so we think, how does a Lutheran uh, become a white supremacist uh, domestic terrorist? So that's that's a conundrum, and well, that is a specific case because sometimes it's good to anchor things in the concrete to say, well, there isn't really white supremacy in the in the church. This is just an assumption. Like, no, here's a case only a few years ago, in which someone murdered a white Lutheran, murdered black people point blank in their own church in cold blood. So. That definitely sent a lot of ripples through the ELCA, the, the Lutheran Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And I know there was some criticism from clergy and others, particularly people of color, that the church never fully repented of that. There were statements and there was lament, uh, but not a real introspection to say, how is it we're raising youth in our church? who are becoming white supremacist murderers. How is that not caught? What was being preached in that church? Yeah. Like all the different things. Um, like how can someone go through the system for years and then this be the outcome? Um, so we, we're not going to necessarily present answers or solutions to that, but that's a kind of jumping off point to say, we do have a problem of white supremacy in churches, and it's not just the Christian right. It's not just evangelical churches that, yes, are bigger and more popular in the U.S., and they have their Canadian correlates. Uh, many of them have supported convoy organizing and various things, so we're well aware of that. And that's a little more apparent and obvious because their messaging is so overt to say, yeah, we're all about freedom, and then freedom means these very specific things in some cases, and they can be very troubling things. Um, but to take a step back from that and look introspectively at our own tradition in the Lutheran Church and mainline churches, in which we present ourselves to the world and to, and to each other as more progressive expressions of the Christian faith, and then realize, like, we haven't come very far in, in some of these things. Not to say no good work is happening, because yeah. we're going to get angry emails about that. How can you just paint everything with one broad stroke? And you're like, we're not. Yeah. But just to be critically reflective, that's a healthy thing, right? When you discover cancer in one part of your body, you really want the doctor and the diagnostic team to check other parts of your body, right? You don't just say, well, we saw we saw one speck of it, you're like, oh, well, what if there's more? Yeah. Right? And so using that analogy, maybe we haven't done such a good job of, like, getting the body of Christ screened for pathogens. Yeah. We yeah. tend to say, oh, well, you know what? It's real hard to find a doctor these days. <laughs> maybe I just won't go. Yeah. And I'm not going to go for screening. I'm not going to go to the clinic. And maybe it'll just go away. 
Or maybe it was just made up to begin with. They're just trying to scare us. And But you talk to anyone who's had to deal with serious illness like that. It's like, no, you want to get on top of that. And so maybe that's the first step of any of this is to get past the denial and get towards having an actual conversation about what are we going to do about white supremacy in churches? Yeah, I, I notice this in Victoria a lot. I think it's like really comes from a place of complacency. Like, you know, um, I don't know. Like, you know, yeah, the statements are good. Statements are good. But like you need to go further than just a statement right or like you need there it needs to be like serious tangible action taken and i know i i know like i said i know it's in victoria a lot where um i don't know it's it, it's kind of hard to explain because i don't fully understand the, the mindset you know what i mean but it's like well you know i haven't because you know again like from this is less from um this is from like an indigenous perspective um and especially around things like like residential schools and colonialism a lot of people kind of assume just because they didn't like come over on the mayflower that they're in no way responsible for systems of colonialism that that still impact indigenous communities today and i feel like that's kind of um that is the same with like what we're talking about, like churches and white supremacies. Cause like, well, okay. They didn't set up the systems, but they're living pretty comfortably within them. Right. Without, like you said, without a lot of self self reflection. And that's like deeply needed before any sort of, I, I don't know. It's hard. Like again, yeah, I'm trying to like tiptoe a little bit, but you know, like, uh, like you said, there is good work being done, but I also think that it, you know, I, I don't know how good the work can be until there is that self-reflection and until there is an addressing of those systems. Because you can make statements and you can have groups and you can do all this stuff all you want, but I don't think that real change comes without a sort of accountability. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that I think that rings true and think there's some correlate there between um churches whether you you mentioned like ancestors didn't weren't literally on the mayflower or you know um i didn't attend the church dylan roof did like there's always this plausible deniability yeah of that without willing to see the underlying structures that and privileges that are at place yeah that Again, I think it something we talked on, I think it was the last episode of trying not to take critique so personally. When you talk about justice issues, I think the conversations get shut down because as white people we get, um, we feel personally attacked. And then we, the conversation just is done. Yeah. Because then people are just on defense mode and saying, well, but not me and not my family or not my church, whereas that's not a really productive mode of conversation. Yeah. So it seems like one question would be, how do we um, prepare ourselves to be 
to be open to having that conversation without it seeming as a personal attack. Um, I mean, that was part of the pushback after the, the Dylan Roof um, shot nine people in historic black church. Um, then there were calls to remove the Confederate flag from the state house and just for Confederate flags generally to be removed. Like for example, NASCAR has, has finally taken away <laughs> banned Confederate flags at their gatherings, but that's a fairly recent move. Um, and, and part of it was, well, you know, people just retreated into a defensive stance than those who that flag meant family and heritage. And you could ask what kind of heritage are we talking about? Uh, yeah. Um, but I mean, quickly the lines are redrawn as a, some kind of culture war. Yeah. And it's, it's a very effective ruse. The whole culture war way of framing this problem is a way to evade the discussion, oh, yeah. right? Whether it's culture war, wokeness, freedom of speech and it's all these progressive liberal-minded people on college campuses who become the easy targets of like oh they're just students are so woke these these progressive professors are so woke um if everyone doesn't speak their lingo and isn't up on the latest terms they're just going to cancel them and smash them down and it's a bit of an oversimplification of how things actually work absolutely I mean, things can be meaner on social media. That's true. But I noticed there's a tendency to oversimplify because then you can just avoid the conversation altogether. You make it about wokeness, about culture wars. Why don't we, why don't we just strive for unity? So having the case study, say, like the Charleston Nine, um, is just another touchstone to say, well, this is an actual problem in Lutheran churches that exist now. And we know that, sadly, Canada is a great exporter of white supremacists who tend to be white Christians. Um, Some of them, just like searching for success in Hollywood or on Broadway, there's a kind of pipeline of white supremacists into the U.S. We send Uh, some of the most prolific ones are looking for a bigger audience, a bigger group of people to work with. And so they'll, right, we've had neo-Nazis like from Winnipeg and areas who have worked with groups like The Base and and others who head down to the U.S. And so we know there's a continual conversation. Um, So we can't just call it a U.S. problem. No, It's we share too much in common. As much as Canadians, we don't like to admit it. And yeah, there are distinctive differences and we have a parliamentary system. We don't, right? We have different modes of government, governance and history. We get that. Uh, but these kinds of culture, like white supremacy culture, doesn't stop at the border. No. One of, one of the, uh, and I'm sure people listening to this probably already know this, but just to put it into words, one of the, what the founder of a group that is now on the domestic terrorist, the group of like, or the group of, uh, sorry, the list of terrorist groups in Canada that got a lot of, um, attention for like the Jan January 6th, um, sort of insurrection. I don't know like the language to use around that. Cause I'm not from the States, but, um, 
was from Canada. Like he founded the group that is now considered a domestic terrorist group. (laughs) You know what I mean? So like, yeah, like you're saying, like clearly it's not just an America problem. Like, yeah, yeah. Like we are some of the, the worst of the worst are from Canada. Right. And they're just going to go where they think they can find a bigger platform. Yeah. And I mean, the U S is just 10 times bigger in terms of population. It's a world superpower. And so, yeah, people are drawn towards power in that. But we've also seen popular movements within Canada, right? These things feed off each other. The popularity or success of the January 6th insurrection um, then has had reverberations here where people... Freedom convoy (laughs) and stuff like that. Right. Um, So we've seen groups have success during the pandemic where the rest of us were kind of trying to stay at home and, you know, stay away from public spaces. Others were organizing to great effect. So we're in this mode of playing catch up right now is sort of what it feels like. Yeah. Um, But I, I wonder if as churches, again, if there are ways for us just to be aware of that in the same way that in certain times of the church year, we begin with confession and forgiveness um, there are some confession rites, some newer ones that there's like lament for racism, confession that the whole act of cor- corporate confession theologically is one of admitting that we are part of a greater system from which we can't extract ourselves. And so the problem with sin in a theological sense isn't just rooted in individual actions, even though that is obviously we participate as individuals in a larger system. So there is that too. Um, But the bigger issue is that systems become so powerful that we're influenced them even when we try to uh, undermine negative effects they might have. So in that sense, confession and forgiveness is is effective for talking about trying to uh, un, unwind uh, systemic racism because it's not just about individual action. It's about being part of white supremacist legacy of colonialism, of how governments and churches have acted together, and how we're caught up in those systems. So that's not a bad place from a Christian tradition to start, to think we do have liturgies that name those things explicitly, and then the prayer in the midst of a rite of confession and forgiveness is to say, we don't, we don't know how to fix this, and we, we know we actually can't fix it on our own. And that from a Christian perspective, we need divine help for that. But even from a non-Christian perspective, justice organizations and activists would share in that sense of kind of, and it's a confession of uh, maybe not futility, but a sense like we're so caught up, you know, we're so so caught up in the mud of this, we, we just don't even know where to begin a little bit. So that's not a bad starting point to just admit we're so deep in it, we can't fix this because we're in the middle of it. Um, and then from there, through some 
admission that this is the reality. Uh, from there, other conversations become possible. Yeah. I have, so I'm going to ask you a question that we didn't discuss before. Again, I'm going to surprise you a little bit, but um, like, have you as, because you've been a pastor for a while and you've been a pastor in both, like you said, the ELCA and the ELCIC. Have you ever thought of way, like, I'm sure you have thought of ways, but do you have any, like, any ways that you think that at least we can kind of start on the right path? Or, like, have you ever had thoughts like that? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's being in conversation with people who are actively working on those things. And so I had attended the first Decolonized Lutheranism conference uh, in Chicago, which was right around that 2015 time okay it was just before uh trump was elected so he was doing all his big campaigning and stops to great effect his kind of rock star tours um that the charleston shooting had had it was right around then um and it was just uh i guess heartening to see like over a hundred people showed up mainly from around the u.s uh, Lutherans who just wanted to talk about what are ways we could decolonize the church and ourselves. And so I think it's being connected to a wider conversation is what's needed because the problem with um, or a challenge with congregational ministry is that everyone just gets busy in their own context and location you don't really have the time and energy to sustain a wider conversation on your own. And so being part of something larger opens you up to those conversations. You think, oh, I don't have to do it on my own. We have this whole wider body of people. And that was actually led by seminarians. It was a conference solely planned and led by seminarians. And I think they were given free space by their seminary in Chicago, but they had like very little budget. Okay. And we stayed in dorms, in like like literal hostel <laughs> dorms. I was there for almost a week. Oh my gosh! Sleeping in a bunk bed. Yeah. That was uh, that was a little intense. Yeah. Um. But I got to meet a bunch of people, and that was a catalyst for realizing, oh, there's a lot of cool stuff we could be doing locally, and we could sustain one another through this. And I mean, that's happening. I've seen that happen here too. We have a study conference in the BC Synod, that's Lutherans in BC, our kind of organization. And for rostered leaders, so pastors, deacons, um, type folks, and our bishop gather together once a year and invite, say, like a seminary professor or a guest keynote speaker and help propel conversations on these kinds of topics. Because the reality is everyone just goes back to their kind of post and and don't have necessarily enough dialogue partners. So I think making this podcast is important for me for that reason to help sustain some of these conversations. And I'm hoping when we release these, then it'll also stimulate some conversation as well. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And, and, and like about, you know, you're kind of talking about going back to your post. I've, I've kind of noticed that with like, like I don't it's probably feels a little bit different as like a someone working in the synod but like as like a just a 
you know, church goer, <laughs> like there is, it does feel like it feels very, I feel very disconnected from almost every single other Lutheran congregation. Like, like there's another ELCIC Lutheran congregation in Victoria. And like, I, I don't know, like it feels like it's like a whole other world. And same with like, you know, I know there are like several in Vancouver, but it just feels like totally separate, which is interesting because we're all part of this. Yeah. The same national organization. And so, yeah, it's like, how do you, how do you connect those like a little easier? And like you're saying, hopefully opening, opening dialogue, but yeah, I don't know. I've noticed that it feels very, very disconnected. It also depends a bit on the capacity of each congregation. Yeah. So some churches, for example, are might be without a pastor yeah. or without a full-time pastor. Yeah. And in that case, then their capacity is reduced, right? Yeah. If you don't have a full-time pastor, then you're having to put your energy on the more local things. So that's where we've been fortunate at Church of the Cross with two of us we can be on campus a bit more. We could do things like this, like yeah. create a podcast. Um, we can support inclusive Christians at UVic. I think having a college campus nearby is huge. In both the calls I've had, one to a smaller Lutheran church and now to a mid-sized one, that both are very close to universities. And that makes a world of difference because there's lots of people to talk to at universities and a lot of conversations happening. So you can imagine the more rural or isolated you are, the fewer of those conversations there are to have in person. (laughs) That's where the online communities can be so important. And people can disparage online communities, but there's still like real people there. And for some, that's a way they stay uh, connected to colleagues and wider discussions. Because as long as they have an internet connection, they're just as connected to that as as we are in terms of that online community. So I think those things can be important and you can have Zoom conversations and, and so on inexpensively. So that's that's an asset. Um, but, but yeah, I think one thing I notice in, say, relative to Virginia, Virginia is not the Virginia Synod Again, that's the wider Lutheran body of that part of the U.S. Um, wasn't huge, but it was in the U.S. So we're talking significantly higher number of congregations yeah. and people and churchgoers in a smallish state, yeah, and in a, with a large rural area. But even there, like every fifty kilometers, there'd be another Lutheran church, whereas yeah. that's not the same thing in bc no no more like there there's going to be a bigger saturation in the lower mainland um but even there you've got commuting distance between different places and people get busy and so on yeah so uh and we've got fewer full-time staff in the bishop's office for example than some of the u.s synods have so I, I just noticed that the church structures themselves are just smaller with a smaller population. Yeah. And, and BC has fewer Lutherans than some of the other Western provinces, for example. Um, so that all kind of plays into it. We're, so I think that especially coming out of pandemic, people are just wanting to connect. 
and and support one another in that. So and and getting together, I think, for joyful things too. Yeah, I've heard that from activist communities that we shouldn't just get together. You don't just want you know, just like a family shouldn't just get together for the funerals. Yes. You know, it's important to get yeah. together at those times, but you want to be there for the weddings. You want to be there for the baptisms. You want to go out just because it's a joyful thing to do. Yeah. Um, and if people only get together to do really hard, wearying things, that, burnout. yeah, then there's more chance of, of burnout. Yeah. So I think the correlate to how can we solve these problems is building relationships and then spending time together over joy yeah yeah well thank you and we should uh so this was a little bit of a shorter episode this time um but like Lyndon said at the beginning these this is not the end of this conversation and like we said last these are because all these are connected all the topics are kind of connected so um definitely not the last time we are going to talk about this but um we need to wrap it up for today because we don't have a lot of time left. We of. don't want to take over someone else's time. No, that's, no. that's a rude thing to do yeah. in the recording studio. Yeah, yeah. So we better end here and uh, save it and, and get out of here. But uh, thank you for listening to the third episode. I forgot to mention that at the beginning. And we should probably also, I feel like I was thinking during it, maybe we should do like a trigger warning at the beginning of this. I'm going to record a little something the next time we're in here, just because we talked a lot about, you know, like sort of like sickness and violence and all this kind of stuff. So I'm like, I think that maybe it could. So I don't know why I'm saying this on the recording, but hey, whatever. And uh, and also to wrap up, we want to thank CFUV. want to thank Multifaith UVic. Yes. want to thank Lutheran Church of the Cross. Yes. Inclusive Christians. Uh, You can find us online searching those tag names um we're also at lutheranvictoria.ca and then uh on all the instagram and facebook channels yeah yeah absolutely okay thank you very much